0: Here's our life, it's an offering unto the Lord, and let him speak freely into it. May we have ears to hear what he has to say to us from his word today. I want to invite you to take your Bibles to Hebrews, book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. This morning we're going to read verses, begin at verse 3. Verse 3 and... Um, let's see where are we going, through 19, yeah, 3 through 19 this morning. In honor of God's Word, I want to invite you to stand with me, Hebrews chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 3 through 19. For by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, to which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gift, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. and Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events yet unseen and reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, in him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of, he- of the heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For God, who speaks thus, makes it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, Through Isaac your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him up from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now, Lord, that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, that, Father, that we would have ears to hear, Lord, that you would direct our gaze unto Christ. We know that the spirit Uh does that, that the role of the spirit is to point us to Jesus. Uh, I pray, Father, that we would see Jesus, that we would behold him, because your word says that when we see Jesus, we shall become like him. Your word says that we shall be Uh, made into his image, uh, completed everything that we desire, everything that we were made for is fulfilled in him. So I pray, Lord, let us see Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. There's a TV show. Uh, by the name of Ted Lasso, that has uh, its main character, Ted Lasso, uh, who is an American football coach, and he's hired to coach a, a British soccer team, what the rest of the world calls football. And so uh, to motivate his, his team, Ted tells them that, that winning starts with believing. You have to believe. You have to believe in yourselves. You have to believe in the system. You have to believe that it, you are capable of being a winner. And so he hangs a, a simple sign uh, above the locker room that simply reads, believe, believe. Man, believe. Believe is, is the team's mantra. It's their, their motivation. It, it's their identity, right? There's this sign is their mojo. But then there's this guy by the name of Nate. That's when you boo if you watch the show. Nate is an assistant coach who who Ted had actually raised. He was like an equipment manager and and Ted saw potential in him and and brought him up through the ranks and then makes him an assistant coach and then Nate uh, falls away, if you will. He falls away from... Uh, Richmond, uh, the team that Ted coaches, to coach the rival team. And uh, before he leaves the locker room, he's in there by himself, uh, about to leave, and he takes that sign, he gets up on a chair, he takes it down, and he rips it in half. Well, Ted comes in, and he sees that sign like that laying on his desk, and so he goes back, and and he tries to tape it back together. He puts it back up on the wall, so hopefully the team will not notice that the sign has been torn. But then in one of his pep talks, they get all excited, and one of the players goes up, he slaps the sign, and then half of it peels off the wall. And when that happens, the team just gasps. I mean, they're like going, this is a, this is a really bad omen. Right? This was everything that we were, were hoping in, and, and our belief has literally been ripped in half. This can't be good. And so they are in a panic. They, they, they are concerned that they're going to lose their confidence. And so Ted has to go in and give a, another one of his famous pep talks. And in this pep talk, he reminds the team that belief is not just simply a, a word on a sign in a locker room, That it's in here. It's something that's within them. A A sign was not what they believed in. The sign was there to remind them of what was already inside of them. They already believed. It was within. The scene reminds me a lot of the biblical story of what Satan and the world wants to do to our faith... They want to rip it in half. They want us to lose our confidence in God. They want to take away our our hope. And Satan, who has rebelled against God and now coaches the rival team, uh, aims to destroy the core of our belief system. That salvation is by faith in Christ alone. He wants to rip that to shreds. And every time he he tells us things like our performance is needed if we want to be accepted by God, every time he says stuff like that, he rips it in half. Every time he tells us that uh, science has overridden faith and that it's more rational, he rips it in half. Every time that he takes away our our confidence and our hope because of suffering and difficulties that we have in our life, he's attempting to rip it in half. And so the writer of Hebrews um, goes to great lengths to tell us your hope and your faith is within you. It's in there. It's in there. And because it's in there, it's safe. And the enemy cannot rip it from within you. And so he goes through and he tells us these stories after stories of faith. An array of reminders that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses of those who have gone before us whose faith endured. Hebrews 11 contains the A to Z of those who were commended for their faith. Two weeks ago, we, we looked at the passage, we saw that faith is the assurance or the, the substance of things hoped for, and the confidence or evidence of things not yet seen. And so we saw that the object of our faith is what really matters, what ultimately ultimately matters and that our faith is in Jesus. It's the object of our faith that matters, not our faith in and of itself. That's why Jesus says things like, well, you can have faith the size of a mustard seed and still move mountains. It's not the amount of faith we're able to build up. It is the person in whose faith, or who, who's, who faith we place our trust in. So we are saved by faith in Jesus. We are sanctified ...by faith, through faith in Jesus. And so now we're invited into the great hall of heroes of the faith. But what we're going to discover in this chapter... ...is that there's really only one hero. There's really only one. This chapter, even though it is full of stories... ...about heroes, great characters of the Old Testament... What we're going to discover today is that this chapter is actually all about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Jesus himself said that the Old Testament scriptures were about him. They reveal him. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day in John 5, 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they... They bear witness about me. The scriptures that Jesus was referring to would have been the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And so he's saying, you search the scriptures for eternal life and it's all about me? And then on the road to Emmaus as Jesus is disguised walking with two of his disciples, we read in Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses, which is Genesis, and through all the prophets, which is all the way through Malachi, through the entire Old Testament, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Of course, that would have been a, from Moses to the prophets. So this is the Old Testament, and he says, basically, the Old Testament is about me. So it's all about him. And so when we come to a chapter that is constantly talking about these, these, these great characters of faith from the Old Testament, well, then we have to conclude, because of what Jesus said, that this is ultimately a chapter about him. It's a chapter about Jesus. It has been said that there is a scarlet thread the scarlet thread of redemption that is woven throughout the whole Bible, meaning the blood of Christ is on every page of the Bible. William Evans said, if you cut the Bible anywhere, it bleeds. The blood of Jesus stains every page of both Testaments, old and new. So that being the case, the best way to study Hebrews chapter 11 is to search for the scarlet thread. To find that scarlet thread. And then to weave throughout the chapter following that thread. Well, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to follow the scarlet thread. And it begins in verse 3. Verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what it was visible. That's called creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. The scarlet thread of redemption starts with the beginning of creation itself, with creation itself. When God said, "Let there be light," he was talking about a whole lot more than particles and waves. It was an unleashing at that moment when he spoke of the glory of Christ, the eternal Son of God. Have you ever wondered why God created? I mean, is he just bored one day and says, hey, let's do something new? Uh, I don't think so. Was it because he was lonely or there was something he was like going, I need some." people to worship me? Was that it? No, God is completely satisfied and fulfilled. He needs nothing. He doesn't need us. The reason that God created is because the Bible says that God is love and love can't help but to overflow. And so he created because he's loving and because he wanted some people, some creation in which to express his love. At the same time, when we receive that love, he receives glory. So that tells us the second reason that he created. It's because God is glorious. And in the same way that love has to ex- be expressed, glory can't stay contained. It must, it must be exalted and outward in its movement. Well, the scarlet thread of redemption starts here at the point of creation, because that's the point where we see Christ's glory revealed. It's not where Christ began. Christ is eternal. Jesus is not a created being. He is God. He's been God for all eternity. But it seems to be the moment when God said, let there be light, it was like saying, let the glory of Christ shine. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created. Who created? Jesus did. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, check this out, all things were created through him and for him. Now we get that everything would be created for him. That includes you and me. Everything was created for his glory. But what in the world does it mean that all things were created through him? Well, we could say that all things were created through him or, or by him. But, but I think what it means is that all things were created through him because they came out of his glory. God created all things ex nihilo, which, which means out of nothing. There was no pre-existent matter that God used. There was only the eternal glory of the sun. People, scientists, you know, like the whole Big Bang thing, everybody's going, well, the Big Bang, that's how it all happened. That's how it all went down. And I always want to ask the question, well, what was there right before that? I looked it up online because that's how you find out anything today. And if you go online and you type in the question, what was there before the Big Bang, what you're going to discover is the word mystery appears an awful lot. Because honestly, scientists are going, well, I don't, we don't know. What was there before? What creates matter out of nothing? Was there a giant rock that exploded? Well, where did the rock come from? Well, no, there were these gases that were in the air. Where did that come from? And you're always kind of pushing back, pushing back, pushing back till you finally get to the point of going, we don't know. And the right of Hebrews says, I know. I know. Genesis 1 1 says, in the beginning, God. God. In the beginning was God. And out of His glory, through the glory of Christ, He made everything Psalm 19.1 says the heavens declare the glory of God. I think that has the meaning of you look up and you see the stars and you see the, the majesty of it all and you go, my goodness, what a huge God. But if that was created through the glory of God, then we're going, oh my goodness, that reveals that glory. It shows us that glory. And... The purpose and pursuit of a life that does not have the glory of God as its objective is a wasted life. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, it do it all for the glory of God. Everything for the glory of God. Everything for the glory of God. What's left after that? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. That pretty much includes it all, doesn't it? Everything that you do, everything you do, do it for the, you can parent for the glory of God. You can change diapers for the glory of God. You can eat and drink for the glory of God. You can watch movies for the glory of God. You can have conversations with friends. You can enjoy a cup of coffee for the glory of God. You can do your finances for the glory of God. You can go to the gym and exercise for the glory of God. There's nothing that you can do without God's glory at the center of it. All things can be done for the glory of God. And if you can't bring God glory by doing it, it's probably a sign you shouldn't do it. So this is where the, the thread of redemption begins. The thread of redemption begins. This so I want to say something, uh, and, and I really want you to take this to heart because it seems to me that a lot of, of people today, a lot of Christians today, are intimidated by science. Right? We 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 think of science. We think of you know all this stuff about evolution, and understand all that big bang, all this uh, uh, stuff about you know the the uh, stars in the sky and and infinity, and then you go to physics, and it's all just mind-blowing. And for some reason, we Christians get intimidated by that. But when you look at the history of science, it was Christians who began the whole thing. It was believers in Christ. And we have the tendency to think that that you can't be a scientist and a believer at the same time, that if all the scientists out there must be atheists. That's just simply not true. That's not true. Because the reality is, is that a scientist has to begin with certain presuppositions already. You just have to. And so if your presupposition is there is no God, then you're going to reason and you're going to see everything through that lens. And it's going to taint everything that you see going forward. And the reality is, is no science can, scientist can fully, with certainty, trust his own senses. And so he is operating by what? Faith. Faith. Maybe he has unbelief and his faith is in his unbelief, or his faith is in his reason. But ultimately, it comes down to faith. There's no way around it. And so don't be intimidated by the world of science. I think science is there as a beautiful exploration of how to see how God did what he did. And so it's all a matter of faith. And so the scarlet web begins at creation, and then here in Hebrews chapter 11, it continues to move, and we see it move now through three... Uh, what I call pre-flood characters. The, these three guys existed prior to obviously the flood and together when you put them all together they point uh, they, they paint a portrait of redemption and, w- and we see this working all the way through and so the first thing I want you to see is the gospel the gospel according to Abel. the gospel according to Abel. Now, I'm sure that you are familiar with the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But today, we are going to look at the gospel of Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham. Because, like Jesus said, the Old Testament is filled with gospel. So let's look at the gospel according to Abel. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. (laughs) I love this, right? The, The first two siblings in creation, in all of history, were two brothers, Cain and Abel. And the first thing that we read about these two brothers is that they were in the midst, they were enthralled in Genesis 4 in the first ever worship war. It's been around for a very long time. And so Cain, we are told, worked the land. And so as an offering to God, he brought some uh, of his produce. He, he was a, a farmer. And so he brought his produce and offered it up to God Cain uh, on the, excuse me Abel on the other hand was a rancher and so he, he brought an offering to the Lord that was fat portions from his firstborn of the flock and we're told that the Lord looked on both of these offerings and he preferred the offering of Abel over Cain why why well, it's simply a matter of this. Cain's offering required blood. Cain's offering required sacrifice. Cain's offering required a death. Therefore, Cain's offering pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus in the future. That's the difference. That's the di- it wasn't that he was like going, I'm not, you know, I'm not a vegetable guy. I don't do broccoli. No, give me steak. It's not like that because, you know, he's God. It, It was because God knew the entire plan of redemption and one of those sacrifices would point us to Jesus while the other would not. And that's why we see that he, God, accepted the offering of Abel. Ironically, Cain would spill his brother's blood in a jealous rage, but Abel's sacrifice still speaks today because it points us to the sacrifice of Jesus. It's the scarlet thread. Now look at with me at the gospel according to Enoch. Verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Interesting. So Enoch is is kind of this rather mysterious character. All we really know about him is that he walked with God. Genesis 5.24 says Enoch walked with God and then he was not for God took him. If that is all that would ever be said about me at the end of my life, I would have lived a quite successful life to have walked with God, to walk with God. If you recall in in the beginning that Adam and Eve were, The people who walked with God in the the garden before the fall in the cool of the day. They they were the ones who walked with God. And here we find seven generations later this guy named Enoch, and he also is continuing to walk with God. Which is is a miracle. What does it mean to walk with God? What do we mean by that? Well, it, it basically means that God is our closest companion. To walk is a, is a metaphor for living. And so he lived with a constant awareness of God. He, he lived seeking God. That's what we see in verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please him. For ever who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who what? Seek him. And so walking with God means seeking God. It means being in communion with God. We, we, we plan our lives. We uh, invent our identities. We, we pursue our own version of happiness in our culture. And we do it without God. Without even thinking about God. It, His glory is not at the center. And we're not walking with Him when we pursue these things. In fact, we're walking without Him. So, so if we're going to walk with God... We have to walk with God. It doesn't mean we walk out in front of Him. You know, we're always a mile in front of God going, Come on, God, catch up with me. Let's go do my thing. And a lot of us live that way. It's like, here's my plan. I need to get God on board with my plan. I need God to bless me so I can live my best life now. Or, to the extreme, we're so far behind God... We're dragging our heels because we're terrified where he's leading us. We don't trust where he's leading us. And so we're like, I don't know about this following God business. I kind of had my own plan. Well, to walk with God means that we are in communion with God. We're with God. And we are going with God wherever he decides that he's going. That's what it means that he walked Well, the only way that we are able to walk with God is because of our salvation in Christ. Jesus made it possible for us to have a relationship where we could walk with God. So once again, we see the scarlet thread. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5-7 that we walk by faith and not by sight. So we are walking, we walk with God is an act of continuous daily faith. Next I want you to see the gospel according to Noah. Verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructing an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah's faith is put on display after God warned him of a coming flood. Now, I want you to begin to see that there is a pattern forming in every one of these examples. And then in just a moment, the writer of Hebrews is really just going to simply spell it out for us. But in every one of these patterns, when we go back to verse 1, which is our definition of faith, it says faith is the the evidence, the confidence of things unseen, things in the future. And so one of the things about faith that we really need to understand is faith is always future-oriented. It's always thinking ahead. Now remember that because that's going to be very, very important in just a moment. So we see that God has warned Noah that a flood is coming. And so he starts to build an ark in the middle of uh, the eastern desert. Or, or apparently Judy just went and saw it. it, it it's here now somewhere. Where is where's that? Where's Judy? Yeah, it's in Kansas now. You can go see the ark in Kansas. So he, he started to build an ark. Oh, he in Kentucky. Is there? Yeah. So, so he started, it's a K word. He started to build an ark in the middle of the eastern desert. And that's a very public act of faith, right? Because you don't just do that. You do that and, and people are going to see you have something weird going on, right? You don't just up and build huge boats in the middle of nowhere. Especially to tell people, well, it's because a flood's coming. And people are going, flood? What? what? Don't even know what that is. Flood, yeah, it's going rain. to rain. I mean, nobody has a clue. And so the entire human race has rebelled against God, which is why that this judgment of a flood is coming. It's God's wrath on man's sinfulness. And all these people see him and his sons building this giant gigantic boat and they had to think Noah's lost his mind he's got to be a complete fool for doing something like this the old man's lost his marbles and then the first drop falls and then the next and the next and the sprinkling turns to a downpour and then the water comes from the ground and the deluge commences. And they run to the ark and they bang on the door. Let us in. We want to be rescued. But it's too late. It's too late. God has already sealed them safely in the ark. He has sealed them in. They are safe from his judgment. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Let's follow the scarlet thread uh, because that is a picture of our union with Christ. In Christ, in Christ, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ. Christ is the ark of our salvation. And through faith, we enter into that ark. We enter into Christ. We are in Christ. We are united to Him. We are sealed up by Him. And we escape his wrath. The coming wrath. Do you see the scarlet thread? Woven through Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And the amazing thing is when you put all of those together, you see the entirety of the gospel spelled out for us. Because Abel showed us that the only acceptable way to be accepted by God and to worship him is through a blood sacrifice. Jesus would ultimately be the blood sacrifice that would make it possible for us to draw near to God. Enoch, he walked with God, which shows us that the next step after we are saved by justification is the process of sanctification. It is walking with God, which is also done by faith. And then you get to Noah, and in Noah we are sealed by God. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ, awaiting for the wrath to cease In order that we may land safely in the promised land. John 11. John 11. Jesus said I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me. Though he die. Yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me. Shall never die. Do you believe this? That's the promise of Christ. We won't die. We are sealed in the ark which is Christ. And like Noah, we have been sealed from the wrath of God. Pretty cool, right? Well, now we get to the good stuff because Abraham was the father of it all. So next we see the gospel according to Abraham. The Jewish converts who the writer of Hebrews is addressing, would have a huge place in their heart for Abraham, right? He's the father of the faith. And so we see the most links to show that Abraham lived by faith than anybody else uh, in the Old Testament in this passage. So by faith, Abraham, we are told, leaves the, the comfort of his surrounding home and he goes like a a nomad in search of the promised land. He lived, it says, in tents uh, because he was not making his home here. So a tent obviously is a temporary housing arrangement and he did not settle down, he did not go building big houses, he was looking for a city that is to come. That's what verse 10 says. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham, we could say, had sights on the future. Now, look at the text with me. Hebrews chapter 11, at verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, that they would have an opportunity to return, but as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Do you see that? That is faith on display. It's basically saying, look... We believe that there is a future that is much better than the present. And therefore, we will live in light of that future. I think so many people today, uh, even Christians, are, are living their life like this life is all there is. And so much of our anxiety is because of that. So many of our fears because we are more concerned with the next five years of our life than whether or not we are set for eternity. And we're just always thinking about that. We're always thinking about that. And in eternity always just seems to be that thing that's going to happen after we die, but it never seems to play a role in how we live now. But shouldn't it change everything? Shouldn't it determine every single day of our life? Shouldn't it determine our attitudes like, towards things like, like, like money and possessions? People and what really matters? Because the reality is, is that future in heaven is the, the, greater, the greater hope than things just maybe panning out and getting better over the next couple of years. And when you look at the world today, right, does it seem that we are on a, on a trajectory towards getting better? I mean, look at the last five years. So if we continue on that trajectory, it doesn't seem that we're going to have a very bright future in front of us. And so it could be terrifying to hope that something will change in order to make our future better when our future has been guaranteed in Christ to be amazing. And so what we have have the tendency to do is we live our lives and we take our problems and and it's like we take a, a microscope and we just zero in on that. What the Bible invites us to do is to zoom out, to pan out, to see the big picture, to see what's coming in the future. And when we do that, we're able to zoom out, and the wider the lens goes, what happens to your problems? Well, they become very small by comparison. I'm not saying that you're going to erase all of your worries and concerns But I'm just saying that there comes a point when all of our worries and concerns require us in order to overcome them to just step back and say, I need to know, I need to remember that there is a future, that this is not where I'm placing my hope, that heaven awaits. And that's what they're waiting for. It says they're looking for a heavenly home. That's where they had placed their hope. It is not uh, perfect. Uh, not a, uh, this is not a perfect representation of what faith looks like. I, I don't know uh, where one is. All these died, having not received that. And, and maybe that's going to happen to us. Maybe we're going to die without ever seeing Christ return, right? But what's the promise? Resurrection. And that brings me to what what else he says look if you look down by faith verse 17 abraham he was tested when he was tested he offered up isaac who received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through isaac shall your offspring be named he considered that god was able to raise him up from the dead From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. I love this. Verse 11 points to Sarah. So I'm just going to not skip over Sarah, ladies. Uh, I'm just going to make sure that we cover her in full on Mother's Day. She's going to be our... uh, We're going to give her that, that whole verse, an entire message on Sarah. But... Abraham's wife, right, bears Abraham a son, the son of promise in her old age. And from the promised son, Abraham, is the fulfillment of the promise that Abraham's descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. Now, God then commands Abraham... Finally, I mean he's 100 years old, and he finally gets his son. And then he gets this incredibly shocking command. Verse 17, by faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Take your son, your one and only son, and offer him as a sacrifice. What? Why in the world would God ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac after he had promised that through Isaac his descendants would outnumber the scar, uh, stars in the sky and, and be heirs of this promise. Why? Why would God do that? Was it to test Abraham's faith? Well, I, I don't really think so because Abraham had, had trusted God thus far. Of course, he did have that little thing with, with uh, the maidservant. But was it to see if Abraham wanted to maybe trust the giver more than the gift? Perhaps that was part of it. But I believe that it was actually more to that. I I believe this. I believe that it was to give us a preview of the gospel. A preview of Jesus. This is a trailer for the gospel. That's what I think we got here. Abraham had full intentions of shedding the blood of his only son because he considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. So Abraham believed in resurrection. As Abraham raised the knife to sacrifice his son, God says, stop. Then he provided a ram which was stuck in a thicket the passage says, by its horns. Now a thicket in the Hebrew means a dense shrub covered in thorns. So God provided in that moment a substitute for Isaac that would extend through all of his descendants. A substitute that literally wore a crown of thorns but in the case of God's son he was the substitute there was no substitute for him he was, he was the lamb wearing the crown of thorns he was the one who was sacrificed in our place he was and is our substitute and he was the one who was raised to life again You say, this is is the golden, or excuse me, the, the scarlet thread. This is about Jesus. And we keep following that scarlet thread as it just continues, and we will continue through the rest of this, through Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the prophets. And then eventually it runs to you and to me. We are recipients of The Scarlet Thread. Citizens of a kingdom. And so our hope and our faith is is not built on this life being all there is. We live in light of the victory that Christ has won for us. We live this day in light of that day. We live this day by faith in the reality of that day. And it changes how we live each and every day. We make our decisions. We we plan for our future, not based on this world only. But we live every moment in light of eternity. We build treasures in heaven. Because in this world, whatever we build, moth and rust can destroy and so living by faith is living by faith in future grace living by faith means living in light of heaven it means that our whole understanding of this world is that we are aliens and exiles here and now i've told this this illustration before but uh, i think it fits once again when you go to a hotel Say you spend a week, you're on a business trip, and you have a week in a hotel. You know what you don't do? There's several things you probably don't do, but but one thing you never are going to do is you're never gonna walk into your hotel room, look around and go, I think I'm gonna decorate this place. And then you don't go and buy a new mattress and a new bedspread and new pictures for the wall and some furniture in order to put it Into your home. You don't invest, put all of your time and investment in that temporary location. Why? Because that's ridiculous. It's not home. So what do you invest in? Well, if you're going to spend the money, you're going to put it into your house. That's exactly what Jesus is saying, right? Don't store up treasures on earth where rust and moth destroy. Store up treasures in heaven because that's home. That's home. Last week, we, we had a, a certain individual here. Uh, I'm just going to call him M. And uh, he, he's going to be uh, going to where he's going soon. And, and the whole time he was speaking, I was thinking to myself, he is able to risk everything now because he is confident of what he has then. And so many times, I think this, that we're sitting there listening to these stories, and, and I tell some of these stories, and, and you, you tell these stories, especially to Americans, and it's the same reaction. There's the same like, oh my goodness, I, I, who would do that? I don't understand that. Is he taking the kids? And, and the reason we think that way is, first, we're American, and, and, and because we think... You know, we have to protect this. And he's going, this, this, in line of attorney, this is that. No, I would take this and just offer it all to the Lord for what I'm going to receive then. Well, then it seems like a pretty good deal. It seems like he's got his good head on his shoulders that he understands better than, than we do. And so, yeah, yeah, we can join that same kind of mindset, that same mindset and say, all that matters, all that matters is eternity. Let's live for that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for Jesus. We thank you, Father, for the hope that he alone brings. And and Father, we just ask now that you would uh, help us to live by faith, in our future hope, and our future home. Father, help us not to place our, our hope in, in uh, politicians, not to place our hope in hoping things just get better, but let us place our hope where it's fixed and firm and where we can be fully confident in things not yet seen, but things that we believe are coming. Father, we know that Satan wants to come and, and, and rip up our hope, rip up our, our faith. But Father, uh, that hope and faith is inside the heart. It's protected from him. So Father, when we, we see the enemy's attempts to rock our faith, Father, help us to, to look to Jesus, to place our hope back where it belongs to shut out the voice of doubt and fear and anxiety and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we have this time of invitation. Uh, Be down here in front if you have a decision you need to make. I invite you to come Uh, if uh, you just want to be where you're at and, and pray. But, uh, you know, the Bible says that when Jesus returns, he's going to be looking for faith. Will the Son of Man find faith when he comes again? And may it be said in every single one of us, yes, yes. How will he know? Because we're ready when that day comes. We've been waiting for that day. That's how you see it. So let us be ready. Let us. Him see faith in us, but we make that decision today, so you come.